Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020. How's it going, Dave? Doing well. Start of the Major League Baseball this weekend, all right? Finally here. Yeah, I know. One week late, but I'll take it. It looked a lot worse than that <laughs> earlier points in the winter and early spring. So, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But we're actually going, uh, my dad, son, and I are going on Saturday to the Red Sox at Yankees in uh, Yankee Stadium. I tried to get it, look into a ticket for tomorrow, but I've got meetings in the afternoon. It's a one o'clock game. So, not going to happen, but uh, I am excited about getting out there and seeing the Red Sox early on. And, uh, you know, weather looks like it's going to be decent, 55 degrees or something like that. So not bad for, for an April day. That's great. And uh, everything is back to normal in Yankee Stadium. So with any kind of restrictions there, or you can kind of go and just be a regular yeah. baseball game. Yeah, go do your thing. I don't think there's any other restrictions. Really outdoor stuff in New York City has been fine for quite a while. Yeah. It's only recently the indoor stuff you know, has been allowed without restrictions. But yeah, at the moment, in fact, you know, at, at Kings, we've had a committee that's met weekly to deal with COVID-related issues. And, you know, not always as much to talk about, but sometimes quite a bit. And just on Monday, we decided this was our last weekly meeting. We'll meet if we have to moving forward, yeah. but, you know, it was the end of an era where I, I was only on it for the last, uh, you know, nine months as, as uh, interim provost. But but some of those folks have been on there for two years every week, you know, going through this and really, you know, a couple of people really almost this became their job was was yeah. managing the caseload and and the compliance and keeping track of everything. And so it's it's a big thing, you know, to feel like you now you're you're moving beyond that, hopefully not just temporarily. That's great. Well, April in New York City was always an awesome time, right? Just real, you know, get some nice days and flowers come out. So it's going to be a great day. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, and it's good to be able to move past NCAA basketball, given just how horrible our picks were again. I was trying to just kind of zoom through that part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that had a little bit of accountability, but yeah, it, you know, no need to linger on it. But man, uh, missed both of the final four picks and obviously therefore missed missed the champion. Uh, mm -hmm. Good game, you know, it's yeah. exciting conclusion to the season for the NCAA tournament, but it was not the way we scripted it. No, no, great game. I think that uh, Kansas rightly was the was the champion, but uh, that was a yeah, it was an interesting back and forth and and fun to watch. Uh, just yeah, and a good Final Four overall. That, that Duke North Carolina game on Saturday was was also great, and I was rooting hard for UNC. Which was, <laughs> you know, that was a highlight of uh, of my tournament was uh, Duke losing in the Final Four. Well, in our office pool. There were only two of us that had our champion alive going into the final four. And so if either of them won, you know, we were going to win the pool based on the way the numbers were. 
Well, of course, Villanova was my pick. They lost in the final four, so I didn't get any more points. I ended up last. So I could have been first, but I ended up last. And, of course, the other person had picked Kansas, and so he ended up winning. So okay. it was it was not a pretty picture for, for me and my pool this time around. All right, well, let's turn to Aristotle. We are wrapping up book six of The Politics, short book, uh, just eight chapters. We have chapters six through eight today, Dave. So as Aristotle advised how democracies can be better by, by being situated the right way and, and populated the right way, and with certain occupations emphasized, Aristotle takes up the same subject matter for oligarchies uh, here in chapters six and seven of book six. Uh, chapter eight, he'll get into the different offices that are needed in any form of government. But let's start with chapters six and seven. And to no surprise, he's going to write right at the beginning of chapter six that the first and best attempted of oligarchies is akin to a constitutional government. So the, the best type of oligarchy is one in which there is a balance there between democratic constitutional norms and oligarchic constitutional norms. This balance that we spoke of last week where you wanna have a government that rightly uh, gives unto its people their just desserts, but also is interested in giving them some opportunities uh, to hold office, uh, to partake in government. So the, the more open the oligarchy, the more participatory the oligarchy, the better that oligarchy is going to function. And then on the other end of the spectrum, he writes the more cliquish and tyrannical of oligarchy, um, the worst type of government that you're going to have. And, and here you were to think of, of a circle and with, with a little space at the top in between the two highest points, he's going to tell us really kind of that the best type of oligarchy is very close to the best type of democracy. But as you descend along those, that circle on either side and come to the bottom of that circle, that's really where democracy can be very tyrannical. It can be the rule of a mob or an oligarchy can be very tyrannical, the rule of the few without any care uh, for the law. So what makes an oligarchy good? Good order that allows for opportunity and participation uh, from, from others. Now, in chapter seven, he's going to get into really an interesting conversation that I want to get your feedback on, how the makeup of your military influences whether or not your oligarchy is orderly and accessible or not. And here he talks about four kinds of military forces. Number one, a cavalry. Number two, heavy infantry. Number three, light armed troops. And then fourth and finally, the Navy. So on one end of the spectrum, a cavalry, like people who ride horses. And on the other end of the spectrum, the Navy, people who would board ships and, and, and um, propel a ship forward. The most oligarchic type of military force is the cavalry. The most democratic type of military force is the Navy. So here you endanger yourself to some degree if you don't have a balance in your armed forces. Now, I, I know that your father, Naval Academy, you, you listen to this and, and all of a sudden you have, you've have you now are posted with that lowercase d democratic label. What, what do you think about this, Matt? Now, this changes the whole dynamic of the Army-Navy game. Yeah, that's right. Well, although I think the, the rank and file of the Army probably would fit in that light armed troops category. So, 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of thoughts. I guess going back to the the first point from from chapter six, the idea there that defines an oligarchy is typically a property requirement for for voting and for political participation. And so the you know the higher that property requirement is, then the more oligarchic the regime is, the lower that property requirement is, the more it encourages opportunity and kind of a striving. You know, you can think about the best kind of oligarchy is one where there's an attainable standard. Right. Well, maybe you're not when you're 18, you don't get to vote. But but when you're 25, you can vote because you've you've made it a certain distance in your profession. You, you, you've, you've reached the mark. Now, we may still consider that objectionable for various reasons. But but the idea of, of including an element of merit kind of earning the right to vote by by showing your contribution to the community and then and then at that point being able to move forward. That's the best kind of oligarchy because it's it's one that encourages a dynamism. In the community, rather than you know a really high standard, it's unattainable that only the you know the old families, only the wealthiest of the wealthy can attain. That's that's the worst form of oligarchy. And so there's a parallel here with the military to connect the points because you know the cavalry, of course, in, in Aristotle's day, you have to supply your own horse. So who owns horses? Well, the you know the average farmer um, maybe doesn't. Or if you have a horse, it's it's a workhorse for the farm. If you have a horse that can be uh, trained and prepared for for war, it's because you're you're wealthy. Likewise, the heavy int- infantry, you have to have extra arms and armor, and right again, all these things are expensive, and you couldn't supply them yourself. You know, we this isn't a, a situation where you know today where the military, of course, supplies this fabulous expensive equipment to 18 year old conscripts or 18 year old volunteers, uh, as the case may be. Right where you just you know you're you're flying million million dollar airplanes or or on ships that cost a billion dollars to build, nothing like that. You're you're supplying your own arms in in the militias of Aristotle's day. So, versus navy, what's it take? Two strong arms, right, to row, and or, or an ability on a, on a on a sailing ship to you know play your part, um, and and of course fight when the time comes. Or light armed troops, right? You know, a sword or a, you know, in our day, a musket or something of that sort. Um, small arms are are accessible and, and affordable. So, you know, an imbalance here. If you're if you're a military that focuses on the cavalry or the heavy infantry, then by definition, only the oligarchs can fight. And if the people aren't all fighting for the regime, then they don't have the same stake in the regime. And the friends of the regime are fewer than they otherwise would be. And so Aristotle always wants the friends of the regime to be the majority of the regime. And so having a balance is is very important in accomplishing that. Yeah, and kidding aside on uh, the contemporary American military forces, I think there are really some interesting points here that we can take from Aristotle's analysis. One, I think we don't have to look any further than Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War where we see an Athens that was a naval power, and we see a Sparta that was a land power, right? and that, that was formed of these hoplite armies, right, who were kind of armored phalanx divisions that, that achieved great successes uh, on uh, the, the battlefield. Uh, it's interesting, right? Sparta is this almost this mixture, it tends more oligarchic than democratic, but it's uh, it's not a, a dynastic oligarchy in the sense that someone would, you know, that they were all riding horses, et cetera. So uh, this was a, a very kind of implicit, this would have been 50 years prior to when Aristotle is writing us, the whole Greek world was very much defined by its uh, fighting forces. I think a second interesting point is that 
when you look at what is defining um, legacy, um, what is elite, what is more prestigious uh, back in that age, it's really kind of the, the technological advantage that a horse gives you yeah. that would not be the possession of, of most. Turn the picture to late 20th or 20th century, um, let's say from uh, uh, Mahan forward in, in American military history, where's a lot of the technological advancement is going towards building a steel Navy, right? These amazing ships, right? Where the use of technology at sea allows us to do a variety of different things. And you even take that one step further in the development of an air force and your, your oligarchic aspect of your military forces might be those that are more heavily dependent upon a different type of technology uh, in, in the contemporary setting. And the third interesting point is the following. Back then, it's essential and it's noble if you are an oligarch to participate in battle. You want that horse. You want to fight. But when you look at the makeup of American armed forces in the 21st century, not the wealthy that go into the services, it's not the sons and daughters of congressmen and senators, people in administrative office that tend to go in. It's, it's really kind of the common man. So what does that tell you about the nature of American lowercase d democracy in the 21st century? Are we democratic or have we become more oligarchic in that we have others fight for us? Yeah, that's a great observation. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that is noteworthy, you know, when, when you find that somebody who's, who's famous does do that, right? So you think about that Arizona Cardinals football player, Pat Tillman, who went off and fought right after 9-11, or, you know, Bo Biden, uh, you know, it's somebody like that who, who served in the military, who's the, the son of a, a prominent politician. It, it's striking. It's impressive. Right. And yet it's the kind of thing that two generations ago would have would, of course, been normal. Right? George H.W. Bush, of course, he's a future president, but he's he's the son of a senator and the you know, grandson of the president of the USGA. I mean, he's, he's as blue as the blue blood gets. And yet, of course, he fights. Or, or Ted Williams, right? Spending five years. Ted Williams, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah, five years, not not just playing baseball, entertaining the troops, flying airplanes as a fighter pilot, and and a very uh, you know exceptional one, according to all the the testimony, both in World War II and then again in Korea, right? So he, he's he's done at the end of World War II, and then he comes back for two more years in Korea. So that was just a normal thing. Donald Trump, uh, great. Oh no, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Bill Clinton, right? So now, you know, yeah. you reach the Bill new generation, Clinton. and right. it's it's a very different story. You know, the Vietnam era, uh, very very different approach, and and really since that time, you know that that's become um, one of the underlying stories is is that the military it's all volunteers, of course, and so who's volunteering? It's people who are uh, lower middle class or or poor uh, that are that are filling most of the positions in the military. Yeah. Probably better and safer for people today to grab the megaphone and rally your your uh, ideological um, compatriots to your your cause, right? That's a <laughs> different type of battle. Uh, probably not right. as noble or brave, but certainly more common. The more equivalent of war has uh, morphed in a new direction. Exactly. 
but yeah, I just, I, I think it's, you know, I think the, the point that we take in here, and it's really where the discussion, Aristotle's discussion of the armed forces is tied to a second important point that he makes here in chapter seven, which is that an oligarchy is going to be a strong oligarchy. It's going to be a lasting oligarchy if it, quote, yields a share in the government to the people. So that allows the people to partake in it. A military that has citizen participation is a more balanced military. A government that has more integration of people in various offices is going to be a, a more flourishing uh, oligarchy. So, you know, we, if we have moved into an oligarchic age uh, in the United States, it's, uh, it should kind of send some signals to us that we're in a dangerous place if we're spectating rather than partaking, uh, watching others uh, rather than acting ourselves, a theme that we've hit upon it many times in our discussion of Aristotle, Tocqueville, and even prior to that two, two years ago. Yeah. Let's uh, quickly finish this commentary up. Uh, chapter eight within uh, book six, uh, it, it, Aristotle will go through kind of a, a list of necessary offices for any form of government uh, to function well. We, you need someone to, to make sure that the market is functioning well. You need someone to supervise um, public buildings. You need inspectors, treasurers, recorders uh, of accounts, um, someone who executes a, um, uh, those who have been um, found guilty of crimes, someone who watches over a jail, uh, accountants, controllers. I mean, he, I mean, he's he's not describing the American administrative state in in 2021. It's, it's probably something more like what Tocqueville described in that kind of early township government where you you have those 18 to 20 uh, necessary uh, offices and um, you know you you put the right people with the right mindset in those offices and you're probably going to have a, a fairly you know well-functioning city so nothing here that's um, too controversial at the end of, of book six just to kind of a listing of you know what is what is necessary what are the norms for any um, government to run well yeah, well, you know, I thought about it in terms of, as you were talking about the growth of the administrative state, just you know, what are the functions that you think are essential for your government? And, you know, the original cabinet of the United States federal government, Department of State, Department of Treasury, Department of War, which, of course, became defense later. And then you had an attorney, attorney general. Uh, there was really no Department of Justice exactly, but there was an attorney general that was made up the cabinet. And... So then, you know, as, as you work your way down through the historical development of the bureaucracy of the various departments and cabinet level officials, it tells an interesting story uh, because so, you know, you get Postmaster General, 1820s, 1849, Department of the Interior, uh, 62, it's Department of Agriculture, 1903, Commerce and Labor, then those get split out, Commerce is one and Labor is a se second one. Then the 50s, we have health, education, and welfare. That becomes health and human services. HUD in the 60s, transportation in the 60s, energy 70s, education 70s, right? Veterans Affairs 80s, Homeland Security, of course, the most recent one in 2002. So you, you see the development of the bureaucracy as running parallel to the development of, of our thinking about you know, what the government ought to be doing or what are its priorities. And so you, from the very early stage, where it's basically the orientation is managing foreign affairs and the revenue of the national government, and of course, whatever measure of, of criminal activity the national government's responsible for with the attorney general. And then you have all these more 
economic pieces that emerge, right? interior, agriculture, commerce, labor, and then all of a sudden it's social services, right? So now we're getting into health and housing and transportation and energy and education. So there's a real story there of the development of the bureaucracy and the transformation of the American regime and the transformation of the thinking about what the job of the national government requires. So, you know, you, you see Aristotle's account of this from 2000 plus years ago. And then you think about where we are uh, in our own present day and, you know, what's next? What's the next department to be added? What will that say about how we further reconceptualize the, the job of the national government? All right. Well, let's turn now our attention to Tocqueville's crystal ball. And we've already made our peace with our disastrous NCAA tournament bracket. Uh, thankfully, we're done with basketball. And now it's time to make our preseason baseball picks. And uh, this is a big deal because, you know, last year we both gave you the Braves back in, in March before the season began as the World Series champ. The year before, uh, of course, the short season, I had picked the Dodgers over the Rays in the World Series. Two-year streak on choosing the World Series champion before the season begins. So we got to get it right this time. I know my streak will end eventually because one of these years, the Yankees will win the World Series, and I will never choose the Yankees to win the World Series. Nice. So, so there, there's, there's no possibility that I will be right that year. But every other year, I'll take my chances. Right. So, so we're going to pick our uh, American League champion, uh, National League champion, World Series champion, and then try to give you a, a number of wins for the Braves and the Red Sox. And if you want to give us a, a fancy baseball preview, you can throw that in there too, Dave. Yeah, so I, um, I'm going to go with a, a Lake Michigan World Series. Uh, I'm going to pick the, the nice. White Sox in the American League and the Brewers in the National League. And um, I'm going to predict that the White Sox uh, win, win the World Series. Um, so everyone in Lake Michigan land will be happy. I think that those two cities are less than 100 miles apart. And I just, uh, when I look at both of those teams, I think they've got great pitching. Uh, they've got, you know, really good closer. Uh, they've got, you know, enough offense to, to make it through the season. Uh, I think that uh, both of their divisions are winnable, particularly the White Sox. I don't think they'll have any problem, you know, winning that AL Central. I think same things to be said for Milwaukee. And then you you get to the playoffs and, and you know, uh, arms, you know, tend to, to help out there, you know, and I think they'll, they'll have those arms. So how about you? Yeah, no, I like those picks. Those, those are good choices. I, I thought long and hard about the White Sox as my American league team. I picked them last year actually to win the American league. So if they do it this year, I'll just be one year late. Um, I've got the, I've got Toronto though, winning the American league, you know, different format this year with the playoffs with the 12 teams and no one game wild card. So there's not so much of a, premium, I wouldn't say, on having to win your division. It's still to your advantage to be the best team in the league. You, know, you can get a buy, in essence, that first round, but but not quite as much of a necessity of winning the division to avoid that that one-game potential knockout situation. But I like Toronto. You know, so much young talent there. You know, they can just score runs all day. Enough pitching, I think, to get the job done. Uh, they will have to outscore you, and of course, the bats can go cold in the, in the postseason, but you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., I, I loved his father. Um, you know, I love to see him on, on the big stage. So, you know, obviously I want the Red Sox to win the World Series. But but uh, Toronto, I think, would be a fun team to have doing well. I have them going over the Dodgers. So, 
hate to do it, but the Dodgers are just so good, so strong, top to bottom. That lineup is unbelievable uh, with Freddie Freeman as well as all the other players holding over from last year. I think Mookie Betts is, is due for a, a really big year. You know, he's kind of been hit or miss a little bit since he moved to the Dodgers. I think this is going to be a big year for him. And having Freddie Freeman in the lineup will probably help that as well. Their pitching is, is very strong. Even if Kershaw's 80% of what he used to be, you know, he's, he's only their third best starter. So uh, just unbelievable team. So I think they win the national league. I'm going to take Toronto in the world series. And, you know, this year, first time where the American league won't be at a disadvantage in the world series. You know, it's, it's one of the, I'm not a big fan of the DH, but you know, the, the, the best thing that comes out of having universal DH is that you no longer have American league team who's had somebody as a DH all year. And now you go to the national league city, they have to play first base or outfield. And then someone else has to sit or they don't play, you know, just, it just was a competitive disadvantage, I think for the American league team. And, you know, think about that, of course, as a Red Sox fan with big poppy, not being a great first baseman, but you had to play him at first base. If you want him in your lineup in the world series and the whole year, right. He's not having to do that except maybe an occasional national league uh, interleague game. So, Anyway, I think that's going to be good for the American League, so I'm going to give Toronto the the edge there. Yeah, I say if the Dodgers, one of the highlights, there are not really many that highlights when you go out to California and Los Angeles, but I I do love the Dodgers fan base. I think that they're they're the closest thing to an East Coast fan base and on the West Coast. Uh, well, excuse me, Southern California. The Giants have a great fan base as well. Yeah. So then they have. I mean, that team is just that lineup may be one of the best lineups of of all time. So. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, you could you you do much worse than to predict uh, that they'd make it again. All right. So Braves and Red Sox win totals. So I think that the the Braves lost a great player and Freddie Freeman. But I think, you know, they're they're still going to be strong. I I think that um, at the end of the day, they will. I mean, they're just a good team made up of good players. And I think, you know, with Morton back. Um, I, I, I just can't see them, you know, having a bad season. So I, uh, I'm going to give them 92 wins. Um, I don't think, uh, I think they'll win their division, but I don't think they'll go much further than that. It's hard to have that magic uh, two years in a row. Yeah. Agreed. I've got them for 96. I think they are going to be very good. Um, you know, Kuna should be back and, you know, he missed a good part of last season. You say Olsen stepping in for Freeman, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a downgrade, but not a huge downgrade. So I think, Regular season-wise, will be very strong. Mets will be tough, but you know Scherzer and Degrom are are very much injury risks. And my guess is the Mets don't quite gel this first time out with this newly you know bought team. So I think I think Braves do win the division quite easily, and I'm going to have again 96 wins as a nice solid regular season going into the playoffs. All right, Red Sox. You know, I, I can see them having a, a solid season. I mean, I don't think they'll win in 92 games like last year, but I mean, they're going to score runs. I mean, that, that lineup's a great lineup. I, I think they'll have, you know, some difficulty once again, uh, pitching wise, you know, I, I don't see them being that strong, but I'd give them a, a solid 87 win season, uh, maybe not in the playoffs, but um, you know, people are still going to be going to Fenway park in, in August and September. Yeah, I've got them for 85 wins. I think they'll be competing, like you're saying, especially with the extra wild card position now. But yeah, the pitching, I was hoping they would bring in three strong relievers in the offseason. They brought in two okay left handers kind of toward the tail end of free agency. 
They didn't strengthen the starting rotation that much. They brought in a couple of reclamation projects, Rich Hill, James Paxton, you know, it could be great. I mean, those guys in their day are amazing, but are you going to get more than hundred innings out of either of them? You know, probably not. Uh, with Chris Sale already on the 60 day DL, it just, it, you know, last year was one of those years where everything kind of broke right for them and they probably did better than they should have on paper. And so this year, I kind of expect that you know, maybe no worse team, but just not as many wins. So, you know, 85, you know, it'll keep it interesting, like you're saying, but probably you know, squeak into the playoffs or just miss something like that at the end of the year. All right. Any, anything you're targeting for fantasy draft tonight, Dave? Oh, we've got five strong players on the, uh, on the Tocqueville Americans. Uh, for those of you who are really careful listeners, we finished third last year in our fantasy baseball league. Yeah. Not quite sure about the fairness of the commissioner league. We were 10th uh, as he selected the, the draft for tonight. And, you know, every team gets to pick five players. So we're going to have to uh, scan that kind of 51 and beyond for players and, and try to find those hidden gems yeah. for tonight. But um, it's interesting. We, you know, we, in playing fantasy baseball, we'd always played the cumulative stats and I, I love the, the method we played last year a lot better, just the head to head. Yeah. Uh, but it does get a little silly when you're, you know, adding and, and um, dropping, you know, 40 players a week to make sure that you try to find as many people who are starting two games in one week. So right. the commission changed that there. You can only have five starting pitchers, five pitchers overall. So I think that that'll be a new, new wrinkle okay. in things, but we'll update yeah. you as to how our, our fantasy draft went on this evening. Yep. We'll see how we do. Do we have to change our name from the Tocqueville Americans to the Aristotle, Aristotle, Aristotle or something like that? Or Greeks? <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Reflect on the season. Yes. Sounds good. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there for today. Thank you as always for listening and I encourage you to subscribe and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget. You can reach us at democracy in America today at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you next week. 20, 20 vision.